0: So, our sermon will be from 1 Peter chapter 2, but before we read that, we'll read Romans 13. I'll read the first seven verses from Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Wherefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant to your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain." For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all whatever is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now we will read from First Peter chapter 2. Uh, I'll read a slightly larger section, what we'll be looking at, verses 13 through 17 today. But I will start at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak, For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it if you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered leaving you an example so that he might follow so that you might follow in his footsteps he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. One of the advantages and disadvantages of preaching through entire books is you come to troublesome sections. Uh, Today's section, if I were to just suddenly preach on it, you might get a different interpretation of my intentions than today. Uh, But there is a great advantage in covering all the doctrines of God whether they're comfortable or uncomfortable, because they are all God-breathed and they are all profitable to us. And so we will look for the profit of this one. But before we do that, let us ask the Lord to bless. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage that calls us to submit to authorities for your sake, We pray, Lord, that you would open our minds to understand and our hearts to receive and to practice the things that we hear and the things that we learn. Because, Lord, we know that we are a stiff-necked people, sometimes choosing our own way over yours. And we pray that you would open our minds to understand rightly these things and to submit ourselves to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We were all children at one point, many of us were children in the 60s and 70s, where the basic motto was, you know, the rebel without a cause, there is no authority over me, I am my own authority. And we come to passages like this, and it, it really is one of those things that's against our worldview as Americans, but also against sinful man's worldview. Men do not generally like to submit to authority. I am told when I was in Cambodia and went to the killing fields that the people in the killing fields lined up and waited their turn to be clubbed and thrown into the pit to be buried. That Their their idea of submission to authority was so great that they would wait their turn to be brutally murdered without trying to run away. Um, Shocking. But certainly that is not our attitude. And it's not necessarily even correct. In fact, they should have run away, in my opinion. But we need to consider these things because people are confused as Christians. You know, there's two extremes. One is there can be no authority. One is whatever they say we must believe and do. Uh, Both are wrong. There is the biblical ground, which is sometimes far between the right and the left. And that's what we'll be trying to consider today. So Paul starts, or Peter starts off with, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, every government institution, really. And that's a problem because we are unruly and ungovernable by heart. And you know, we rebelled against the Lord, our ancestors did, and that is part of our makeup. Uh, the Jews were hated In Jesus day because they were considered ungovernable they were infamous for their refusal to submit to any authority placed over them Uh, they were considered perverse and ungovernable and there were a number of massacres of the Jews where they would you know rebel a little too much and whoever had conquered them would send in more troops and slaughter them and we see a little bit of this working out in the New Testament in that we read of like, the governor killing pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. And there were a lot of little skirmishes like that where the people would not submit to any rule and those attempting to rule them would repress them violently. I remember when I was in the army, we were trained how to be a POW, prisoner of war. And the number one duty of a prisoner of war is to continue the war. <laughs> uh, make them send as many troops to keep track of you. Cause as much difficulty for them as possible so that they're, you hinder their supply lines, you require troops who could be on the front lines to be there guarding you. And what inevitably happened in every war, World War II in Korea and Vietnam, uh, they tended to kill the American prisoners who were causing too much trouble. But if you think about that, if you're the governor, you're the leader of a people, and that's the way they're behaving. How difficult is that to deal with? You know, being an ungovernable people brought a very bad testimony to the Jews and ultimately resulted in much of the persecution they saw. But should they have been ungovernable? You know, speaking of church leadership, in Hebrews 13:17, we're told to obey the leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over their souls as those who will give an account. That's true of every leader of every part of government, be it the civil government, the home, or the church. We will give an account. But he goes on to say, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, whatever our leaders are, having them able to lead without groaning, but lead them be able to lead with joy will make our lives better too. But also will please God and give us advantage. And that's why we're told we subject to every institution of government by men, through men, because ultimately there is no government, there is no leadership except what God has appointed. Uh, he starts with the king. I know my translation says emperor, but the word there is king, even though uh, different words. The, The supreme ruler, and he works his way down. That is the highest authority. If you think about our country today, what is the highest authority? Is it the president? Is it Congress? Is it the Supreme Court? Well, I think most Americans would say it should be the Constitution. But remember, the Constitution is paper, not a person. And it's people who are put in authority. Uh, That makes things in our lives a little more complicated as we think about what do we obey and what is right. Most Americans would, well, most conservative Americans would say the Constitution should be the rule. And we'll look into that a little further, but it's generally the person, not the Constitution, not the Magna Carta, not the laws of the land, but the people who are the ones who are ruling. We'll consider this more when we get to the case studies, which we'll go over quite a few of today if we have the time. Uh, Under the king, or the supreme authorities were the governors. Uh, They're called inferior magistrates, usually in American history, meaning that they are under the authority of the one above them. And those people, they're the ones who are supposed to punish crime and give rewards appropriately. Uh, In Rome, in the biblical times when Peter is writing, when Paul wrote, when Jesus spoke, it was the Roman emperor. He had under him proconsuls and procurates like Pontius Pilate, Felix, Festus. Those are the names we know. These would be the men that he's referring to, that Peter is referring to. They were under the emperor. They had been given their authority by the emperor and assigned their duty by the emperor. And that's why they're considered inferior, because they're, he's their superior, their, ma- their master. And they were sent by him to govern the areas. And they received their commission from the king and derived their authority from the king. And they were accountable to the king. Of course, we know that it is God who actually is assigning who is governing and what's happening in the world. Uh, the government's were also responsible for civil order, as I mentioned, doing punishing the wicked and rewarding the good. And the Romans 13 passage, it's a little stronger that we should be afraid if we do wrong because they don't bear the sword in vain. The sword belongs to them, the right to punish the wicked or the, the wrongdoers. And he goes, so far, Paul, now this is Paul, who shortly will be arrested and sent to Rome, facing potential execution by the Roman government. He says, for the, go- the governor is a servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Now, we'll talk about that a little later. But keep that thought in mind. Even though they were persecuting Paul, that's what Paul says and that therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. And so every institution, what does that mean? Well, our larger catechism gives an interpretation of the commandment, honor your father and mother. It it says in question 124, who is meant by father and mother in the commandment? The answer is: By father and mother in the commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially as God, by God's ordinance are over us in a place of authority, whether they be the family, the church, or the commonwealth. And so, historically, Presbyterians, in particular, have interpreted the commandment to honor your father and mother as to honor those who are in authority over you, starting with your parents. And that is why we have so many problems today, because it is attacked at the parent level, particularly in our society where schools teach, no, you don't need to listen to your parents, you don't need to tell them, we'll help you get around your parents. And thus they have no, no fear of God and no fear of authority, no respect for authority. Uh, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands, Ephesians 5.22. Hebrews 13.17 we just read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, the church. And then Romans 13. Especially let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh, Tough thing to swallow that God has instituted all the governments. Well, did God institute ours? Is Biden the the president by choice of God? We'll look at that in a moment, but keep that in the back of your mind. He goes on in verse 13, or begins really verse 13, be subject for the sake of the Lord, for the Lord's sake. Why is this important that it's for the Lord's sake? Well, we are the Lord's servants. We are ambassadors of the Lord. We are proclaiming through him the ministry of reconciliation. And it would certainly dishonor God to reject his commands in Scripture. We are dishonoring him if we don't obey him. Also, because he has established this order and assigned the positions. Remember Daniel? Was he under a good government? Was he being allowed to do what he felt was right before God? Was he free? Not at all. But what does he say in Daniel 2.21? Speaking of God, he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who are understanding. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and rule are all assigned by God. He gives and he takes away. God raises up a king and God causes the kingdom to collapse at his will. So because he has established that order, if we're rebelling against authority, we're really rebelling against God. That's the scriptural teaching. And this really also affects our testimony before unbelievers. And that's really what Peter has in mind in this passage. Remember back in verse 12, he's telling us, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so they speak evil of you of evildoers, and they may see your good deeds and glorify God. You know, when we are disobedient to authority, when we refuse to submit, when we're obstinate and uncooperative, we're giving them an excuse to say, look at those Christians, just as in the past. Look at those Jews. What a horrible God they worship, that he allows them to behave like this. And so it's our, our rebellion against them, our rebellion against God causes really his name to be blasphemed. In, a, you know, in summary, what, what we're seeing in these two passages is pretty explicit. You know, application gets to be the problem. But explicitly, God has established those in authority as the authority. We are to submit to them because God has established them. We are to submit to them for our testimony. We are to submit to them because it is right. Now, what about? <laughs> yeah, the devil is in the details, they say. Uh, Rewin shared with me a video from R.C. Sproul where he was you know, cornered by some pompous young man in a question-and-answer session, asked to justify the War of Independence for America. And he went through and he gave all the usual arguments, but his conclusion was interesting and liberating for me as I thought about it. He said he wasn't going to declare who was right or wrong. He was going to wait until he got to heaven and heard it from God. And, well, he only gave one side, (laughs) but still he was willing to take that attitude. And I think that's wise. You know, what do we know about history from over 200 years ago? How reliable is it? Who wrote it? Are there different histories? Yes, there are. You want to hear different histories talk about the Civil War in America. I've heard two very radically different versions taught. Um, It's hard to go through and rationalize and debate and discuss things in the past unless we have an absolute certainty of the complete historical view. And where do we get that? Well, we have that in Scripture. We have plenty of case studies in Scripture that can enlighten us and help us then to apply to our current situation. Now, Scripture has declared boldly in Genesis 6-5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every inclination and thought of his heart was only evil continually. That is what he's saying about man. Now, you might argue that Christians are a little better, but we're still sinners. Most government is run by unbelievers. Therefore, the government is going to be made up of men whose hearts are wicked all the time and whose every thought of their heart is evil. You don't believe that? Just look at what the government says and does right now. You know It's clearly true. But it, we've also just read that the governments are established by God. We know that the Lord guides the king like water with his hand, directing it where he wants him, the king to go. You know, God's sovereignty is absolute and is over every single thing. And that is why we need to submit. We, we learned this in uh, the Shorter Catechism. We've talked about it before. What are the decrees of God? They are his eternal purpose. According to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he is unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And you know, we looked at that in great detail a couple of times in the past. I'll just remind you of one verse, Ephesians 1. Verse 11, We have an, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. All things includes Assyria invading Israel, Babylon invading Israel, Rome ruling Israel, Biden being president. It's all worked out according to the counsel of his will. You know, we know that the men who rule the government, are sinful, they're corrupt, they commit many crimes and many sins, and therefore this government themselves is full of crime and sin. But their sinfulness is something that God knew about before he established it. By the time the New Testament is being written, there's plenty of Old Testament accounts to reinforce, reinforce this point. Men are basically evil. Their governments being made by evil men are basically evil. And yet he's still saying, submit to them. So I wanted to look at a few examples. Oh, remind you first, Romans 13.1 does say there's no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. And so, yes, all of those governments were instituted by God for his purpose. You know, God's purpose may not be what we want. We want the government to do what it's ultimately supposed to do, right to punish the wrongdoer, to reward the good, to make peace in society. The, the peace of Rome, Romana, was a great thing in the world, even though it was very corrupt and harsh and sinful in many ways. We want that. We want them to do what they're supposed to do. But when men are sinning, and when people are sinning, God uses the government, often evil governments, to punish them. We see that in Babylon. Think of the Babylonians. They were notorious for their monstrous behavior. The Assyrians are reported to have ripped open the pregnant women, taken the children, and smashed them against the wall, killed the men, and taken the women away. Uh, Babylon is sometimes accounted to be even worse. And yet, why were they ruling Israel? What right did they have to rule Israel? I remember somebody telling me we don't have to submit to the federal government because we said the federal government is an evil government that has no right to rule over us. Well, what right did the Babylonians have to rule over them? Strength, power, might, viciousness, brutality, because they declared themselves the rulers? What does Jeremiah say, though? Interesting prophecy in Jeremiah 27, verses 3 through 8. Send word to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, by the hand of envoys, to those who come to Jerusalem, Zedekiah king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched hand, have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whoever seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him, all the nations that shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. God was sending Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, not only to all the lands, but also to Israel to punish them for their wickedness. Now, we also learned that they, they will also, their time will come and their land will be punished for their sins. And interestingly, one of the sins mentioned explicitly in the Bible they committed was raising their hand against Israel, God's chosen. So God may have established that they were to punish Israel for their crimes. So why is Babylon ruling over Israel? Well, because of Israel's sin and because God established the wicked country of Babylon to be his servant in bringing justice to the nations of the land. And it goes beyond that. In Jeremiah 29.7, we're told, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile. And pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So not only were they to submit to these monsters, but they were to pray for their blessing. Uh, really makes you question, you know, do we have a right to rebel just because a government is evil? Well, The first thing I would ask you is, which government is not evil? Only the one in my fantasy world, <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, it's, it's tough, but they, they were sent by God. What about King Saul? Another example. King Saul was made king by God himself. Saul sinned, and God took the nation away from him and announced that he was giving it to, to another, to David. And Saul was not too happy about that and saw David's continued blessing and continued growth and realized God was blessing him and not Saul. And he decided to kill David. And we read the story in, excuse me, in First Samuel um, 24 or 26, 24, of David being pursued by Saul and Saul being delivered into David's hand. Now, at that point, Saul had been revoked his right to be king. I will take the kingdom away from you, God said. I will give it to David, and yet David will not kill him. And we read in that passage that he wouldn't do it because he wouldn't raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And again in 1 Samuel 26, we read another one. Paul says, or yeah, David says of Saul, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And what does David say during these times? God made him king, God anointed him king. God will remove him as king. God hasn't basically commanded me to do that, so I will wait on the Lord to do it, and in the Lord's time He will be taken care of, and I will be king. But he was not willing to raise his own hand because that would be sin. Well, how about Rome? What right did Rome have to rule over? Israel. None, right? They were just the conquerors of the world, the known world, the, the Mediterranean world at that time. Their empire was pretty extensive. They basically ruled lightly where they could and with an iron fist where they needed to. They sent troops to slaughter those who opposed them. Um, Again they weren't they were better than the Babylonians but they had no more authority than the Babylonians. And you'll remember the Jews really hated that rule. They were the conquerors like Babylon. And the Jews thought of them the same way. But what did Jesus say? They came to him. Remember the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him in his words, Mark 12:13 and following. Who were the Herodians? So they were the followers of King Herod. Who was Herod? He was the illegitimate king of Israel appointed by the Romans. Why do I say illegitimate? The king had to be from David's line and he was not from David's line. So he was a usurper. He was hated by the Jewish leadership. They had nothing to do with him and they were enemies and there was even a little bit of fighting and if Rome ever left and gave them independence, Herod's head would probably be removed. However, they joined together with the Herodians because the Pharisees say Rome is illegitimate and the Herodians say Rome is the one who established our king and provides us with the safety we need to keep him king. You know, We support Rome. So they come to him and they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions. Right? Unlike Saul who was a feared man and gave his opinion based on what men wanted. Jesus doesn't do that. He said, you're not swayed by appearance. You truly teach the way of God. Now they're they're buttering him up, but those are all true things. Then the trick question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? And he knows Jesus knew their hypocrisy. What was their hypocrisy? He said, no, you must not pay taxes to Caesar. The Herodians would report him to the government as a revolutionary telling people not to pay taxes, and he'd be arrested. If he says, yes, you must pay taxes to Caesar, the Jewish leaders the Pharisees would be able to say, see, he's not a Jew. He sides with the Romans against us. But we see in the wisdom of his answer, which you all remember, why are you trying to put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, let me look at it. Bring me the coin used to pay taxes. They brought him one. And he said, whose likeness is this? And whose inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. As we read in Romans 13, pay taxes to whom you owe taxes. Even though the Jews would have considered that treason, he's pointing out to them, you're using their coins. You know, you pay who you owe. Uh, You have to think about Peter's situation when he's writing this letter, too. Do you know who the emperor of Rome was when Peter wrote this letter? Nero. What is Nero most famous for? Capturing Christians, spreading tar on them, having them tied on a stake and lit on fire for his garden party to act as torches. That's his greatest claim to fame. Well, Second greatest claim to fame being he burned Rome, a little urban renewal. But his treatment of Christians was beyond evil. You know, smearing them with tar and lighting them alive on fire to act as lights for his garden party. And if you think about it, you know, you ever seen some, we were watching a, a chef, he put his finger in basically rubbing alcohol, lit it on fire, and then does this to set the fire and wipes it off, no burn, because it's just the outside burning. And they put the tar on them, the tar would burn, and not really burn their flesh until they were cooked, and they would have fire burning some of them and not all of them. It would take a while to die. And it was a truly evil and brutal thing. And of that government, Peter is saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This was not a government you wanted to submit to. This was not a government you wanted to have anything to do with if you were a Christian. They were monsters. They were evil. Yet Peter believed, as Paul did and as the Lord did, there was no authority except those appointed by God. They were God's chosen rulers at that time for those at that place. Which is why Peter says, honor the king. Honor the emperor, even though he's a monster or a psychopath. Now, there are other examples, a long list of them. But I want to skip ahead a little bit because of time. We don't want to go for two hours today. My video will stop before then. Uh, what about when they're telling you that? If we have to submit even to an evil government, even to a government that doesn't, we don't think has the right to rule us, what about when they tell us to do something wrong? What about when they command us to do evil or to exceed their authority? They have no right to do that. Well, in the first case, remember that. Roman law allowed them, the Roman officials, including military personnel, to press somebody into service. But there were limits on that. You couldn't press them into service and have them carry your goods all the way to Rome on foot from Israel. That wasn't allowed. There were limits. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5:41. If anyone forces you to go a mile, the word forces there is press into service. And that's literally the, it originally comes from the, basically the Pony Express riders. They would ride a horse. When it was too tired, they would find a new horse, change horses, and go. And you were not allowed to say no. If they came to your stable and wanted the best horse in the stable, they just took it. Pressed into service. And he's using that word here. If anyone presses you into service to go a mile, go with them too. And we see an example of this activity in Matthew 27 when they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and compelled him to carry Jesus' cross. The word compelled is pressed into service. Now, Jesus is saying, for the sake essentially of your testimony, for the sake of peace, even though it's laborious, disagreeable, dehumanizing, You know, except it's their law, Submit to it. I want to look at a few other incidents to help us get an idea, though, of when we don't submit. Remember when Paul was arrested in Philippi and the jailer was converted? Afterwards, they send, the, govern, the governing official sends them and say, go and tell those men to get out of town, quietly. Paul says to them, What? They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and thrown us into prison. That was breaking their law. Their law required that Roman citizens, first of all, could not be beaten or tortured or flogged or anything else or imprisoned without a conviction. So he's saying they did all of this to us and now they want us to throw us out secretly? No. Let them come to themselves and take us out. When the police reported this to the magistrates, they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. They could face consequences for flogging a Roman citizen without being convicted. They had rights. And Paul here is saying, I have rights and you have violated them. You have committed a crime against the authority which allows you to be the governor of the city. When you break the rules that you're supposed to live under, I'm going to call you out on that. And he did. And they came and they apologized. And then they took them and asked them to leave the city. But first, they left the prison. They visited Lydia and the brothers and then left. But understand what happened. They broke the law against him. He called them on it and said, You have broken the law on what you have done. And they apologized. That's good. What about when he was arrested in, Rome, in Jerusalem by the Roman soldiers? After the ongoing incident, he tells them, and God has sent me to the Gentiles, and the Jews start throwing dirt in the air and saying, Away with him, kill him. A riot erupts. The commander, the tribune, orders him to be brought into the barracks. This is from Acts 22 22 and following. And said that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting about. In other words, beat him and then ask questions, torture him and ask questions. And so they were stretching him out to be whipped, and Paul objected. He says, is it lawful you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? He said, I haven't been found guilty. You can't do this legally. And when they heard that, they, they verified it, and they were afraid and, and stopped. You know, once again, they were going to break the law. This point in ignorance, probably, and he was insisting to them, "You don't have the right to break the law," and calling them on that. You remember the Hebrew midwives in Egypt? Another case study. The Egyptian king, uh, Exodus one fifteen through seventeen, the Egyptian king said to the Hebrew midwives. One of whom was named Sapphira and one of whom was named Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. They're committing them, telling them to commit a sin, murdering children, based on their gender. A serious sin, serious crime, ordered by the, the Egyptian government the king himself, but very evil. And what are they going to do? It says the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. You know, when the government says to do evil, you know, like murder somebody, you can say no and refuse. You may face consequences, but you can do that. We're running really short on time, so we'll do just one more. Remember when the apostles were forbidden to teach in the name of Christ? I won't read all of the passages because it's a page worth, but after they healed the man born blind, they were arrested and called before the council, and the council, uh, let's see, They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and what we have heard. So they forbid the gospel and they told them bluntly, God has commanded us to speak the gospel, we will speak the gospel. You must judge what you're going to do about it. And what did they do about it? Well, that time they just threatened them because everybody was praising God that this 40-year-old man was walking. In chapter 5 of Acts, verse 27, they're again brought before the council. They'd been imprisoned, and God had released them. Anyway, he said, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and here you are filling Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They were upset that they were, they were being accused of murdering the, the, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, uh, which they did do. And Peter and the apostles answered again, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. Well, they were not happy to hear that. And after some debate, verse 40 of chapter 5, they again call the apostles, they have them beaten and charged not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Did they have a right to beat them for doing what was right before God? Certainly not. But what was their reaction? They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. So there's the example of an evil government commanding you to abandon your faith, to not teach in the name of Christ, stop evangelism, and they continue to do it every day. And they're not going to stop. So those are some case studies in Scripture. I want to briefly finish the rest of the passage, even though we're running a little short on time. But in these examples, we see some patterns that we can take and follow. They refused to sin, like commit murder. They obeyed God rather than men. They continued to do evangelism even though the name of Christ was banned. When they were sinned against by leaders, they rebuked them. But in everything, other than where they had to not sin or or. Not, not sin or not disobey God. Otherwise, they submitted to them, even though they were evil, even though they were unjust. Now, you might want to know why, and that goes on in our passage, verse 15 and 16. Why? Well, this is the will of God. By doing good, he'll silence the mouths of wicked people. It goes back to verse 12 keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil of you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now our actions, right or wrong, are the source of attacks against God and against Christianity. That's why Paul in Romans 12, 16 and following says this, you live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but, and this is the key I want you to think about, give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. He doesn't say give sight to what is honorable before God. You are doing what's right before God and what's right before the Christians may be the thing that offends the people. They make rules, they make laws, they make requirements um, that are not in God's word, that we have the freedom you know, that we are not bound to that. But when they make it a law, we must give thought to what is honorable in the sight of everyone. If possible, he says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that's where it comes down to, again, living peaceable with all men, being honorable before them, doing what is right before them. We are not you know, obstinate and uncooperative people who cannot be governed or led. We submit to authority, but we will do what is right before God first. And if the time comes, you know, like with the apostles, they were commanded not to speak of Christ anymore, to stop teaching. They would not stop. They would not leave the temple. They continued to preach the gospel and face the consequences. Flogging and then later you know, death, exile—all of those things happen to God's people. <coughs> and Romans fifteen two, it says, "Let let us each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up." You know, same idea being brought out that our obligation is not to live for ourselves. You know, I have rights. I have privileges as a Christian. I have rights as an American. When those are violated, I want to take up arms and fix the problem. But that's not what God's called us to do. He's calling on us. Yes, when they're sinning, call them out on it. Tell them they've sinned. You have no right to close the church. You have no right to forgive, forbid the preaching of Christ. But other than that, they were submitting and facing the consequences. And that's, I think, what he means by not using our freedom, our liberty, as a cover-up for evil. I want to read a quote. I read a little tiny book by a pastor named Henry Scrooge, And he said, there are far too many Christians who would consecrate, justify, their vices, who would hallow, declare holy, their corrupt affections, whose rugged humor by which he means unpleasant disposition, and their sullen pride must pass for Christian strictness, whose fierce wrath and bitter rage against their enemies must be called holy zeal, whose petulancy, not a word I know, but it's unreasonably irritable or ill-tempered behavior, toward their superiors and rebellion against their governors must have the name of Christian courage and resolution, He's saying that we have a tendency to want to go too far and to cover up our sin by saying, oh, see, they're, they're a bad governments, so I don't have to obey them, and I can live the way I want. But that's not the example we see in Christ, in Paul, in Peter, in David, in the Hebrew midwives. They all submitted to God first and did what was right in his eyes and lived with the the suffering that wasn't due them. You know, David certainly had every right to execute Saul and take his place. God had appointed him that task, but he said, no, as long as God has left him as the, the king, I can't raise my hand against him. We are to live as servants of God, he says. A servant's misbehavior brings disgrace upon his master. And in this case, the servant is an ambassador and you know, when the ambassador or the king misbehaves, it's the king who's disgraced. So he sums it all up rather quickly, since I'm out of time. Honor everyone, not because they deserve honor, but because it's due to them in their place, in their position. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and then he reiterates, honor the king. In the case of Peter, remember the king was a monster who was persecuting and killing Christians and would eventually murder Peter. Martyr, Peter. So I think what's been said and what we see in Scripture is saying that our rights, our wants, our needs really come secondary to the kingdom and to the glory of God. We are, as Peter has just said, pilgrims here, exiles here, strangers. We are simply wandering through this world with a job, with a purpose. And that purpose is not to defend our rights and to live the life that we want to live, but live the life that glorifies God, even when it's hard. Now, we do note, and I do want to say so that nobody's overly offended and thinks the wrong thing, when the government sins, we need to call them on it. When the leaders sin, we need to call them on it. And in America, we can call treason, treason. You've suspended the Bill of Rights, that's treason. We need to tell them that. We need to vote appropriately. And we need to be clear in our testimony in the church. But let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you have given us a place in heaven, a place in your kingdom, a place in eternity, where we will live a life filled with joy, a life without suffering and sorrow, a life with our Lord and Savior as our King. And we do pray, Lord, that as we wander this world as strangers and pilgrims, that we would remember your command to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to bring glory to your name day and night, to our work, to our lives, to our labors, through our testimony. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.